Blockchain Advisor is the go-to podcast that bridges the gap between traditional investing and digital assets. The podcast covers a wide range of topics, including stocks, bonds, and commodities, the cryptocurrencies listed on Coinbase, and the Grayscale Investment Trusts. We're going to help you build an elegant portfolio of digital assets from the perspective of an options market maker and registered investment advisor. My name is Bill Uliveri, and I'm the Blockchain Advisor. Well, we're excited to have Professor Lamont Black with us today. Lamont is the Associate Professor of Finance at DePaul University in Chicago. Lamont is an educator, speaker, and author with a focus on financial innovation and financial markets. Prior to joining DePaul, Lamont was an economist at the Federal Reserve in Washington, D.C. Wow, really exciting. And his main interests are cryptocurrency, fintech, banking, and the markets. Welcome, Lamont. Thank you uh, for being with us on the Blockchain Advisor podcast. I'm really excited to catch up with you, Lamont, because I know we connected you know, about four years ago in the blockchain, Chicago blockchain scene. So uh, thanks, thanks for being on the show with us today. Thank you, Bill. It's great to be here. We can just kind of hop right into it. I, I looked back in my, uh, you know, as an advisor, I have to archive all my emails. And I noticed that we connected on May 24th, 2017, when Bitcoin was $2,319 a token. Boy, if I had bought one Bitcoin, every time I met somebody in Chicago blockchain scene, it would be, I would, I would be a, a very happy man. But unfortunately, that's not always the case because even back then, I don't think I was all in the concept of blockchains and cryptocurrencies. And so, Lamont, tell me, like, what, give us a little bit of background. Tell us what brought you to this space. And just, you know, give, give the listeners a little bit of past. We'll discuss the present and then get into the future uh, predictions, forecasting, and what you see for the space. Yeah. Thanks, Bill. So, as you said, my background is with the Fed. I was there from 2005 to 2013. It was an incredible experience. Uh, you know, I lived through the financial crisis, being right at the center of that, uh, that all the work that went into that. But by 2013, I was ready to try something different and started looking at academic jobs. I knew some people at DePaul and Chicago, and so wound up moving here with my family. And it's been a great experience. My teaching portfolio early on was primarily money and banking. And so when I started teaching in 2013, I went into, you know, the history of money, what are the, the definitions of money? And it was my students who really got me thinking about Bitcoin because they had already heard a lot about it. They were interested and wanted to learn more about it. And honestly, I, I hadn't thought about it that much back then. But I started incorporating it into my classes, had some guest speakers from the Chicago scene, some people who have gone on and, and done very well in this space. And then um, over time, that, that kind of grew. The Chicago Tribune actually came to my class a few years ago and wrote a story about Bitcoin in the classroom. And then three years ago, I started a graduate course on blockchain, and that course has continued to grow an enrollment this last year, we shifted the focus to, to talk more about cryptocurrency. And, and so it's just, it's been a fun adventure. And, and like you said, like, I wasn't much of an investor back when I first started, but I am now. And so I've really, I think, started to experience it firsthand, the excitement, the enthusiasm, my students are very excited about it. And I think it's, it's, 
it has so much potential, both in terms of crypto markets and blockchain applications, that I feel very fortunate to be alive, to be an educator during this time where we're seeing so much transformation, and, and I get to be part of it. That's absolutely. So the old adage that when the student is ready, the teacher will appear is kind of true in your case where you came in, you were teaching about money and finance, and your students are like, hey, professor, let's do this Bitcoin thing. And then that kind of, uh, thankfully, right, thank thank God that they had someone that they could talk to about this, right, and be able to explore this new technology rather than perhaps maybe uh, an OG professor, I'm guessing, that just might not have appreciated the technology and the properties of money that Bitcoin has. So so good for them and for DePaul for having you there at this point yeah. in time of history. Yeah, I'm a big believer in technology and how it's changing all aspects of business. You know, I also teach courses now on data analytics. Like, I didn't teach that eight years ago. And, and so I think we as educators have to be flexible. And in particular with crypto, it's changing so fast that I, I don't view myself as sort of the expert who just stands up and lectures my students about the things I know. I've actually taken more of an approach now of I, I think I'm kind of the curator and the guide and I send them out to learn about different things and then come back and we talk about them. And there's so much information on the web now that they're learning things that I don't know. And so it's actually become a great opportunity for me to learn from them and and grow together so it's really cool awesome awesome well let me ask you this question then now that bitcoin and cryptocurrencies have received a little bit more uh street cred like more credibility in financial services how has your perspective from being someone at the federal reserve influence or how like how are your optics today versus back then like would do you see things differently because of your experience at the fed when you're reading news stories or uh, so tell us a little bit about that. Like how, how has that time at the fed helped you today understand their, their conversation? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I've definitely been shaped by my experience at the fed. And I would say when I first came out uh, in 2013, I still had a pretty conservative viewpoint, you know, the federal reserve in some respects, their job is risk management. So they're kind of conservative, by design in the culture. And so I, that was part of my perspective. And so when I first heard about Bitcoin, I think I was skeptical. I think I was more kind of uh, cautious, like many people are when they first encounter it. And so I think I view the last eight years or so as a process. The more I learn, the more I get comfortable with it. Um, you know, not necessarily trusting it because it is kind of a trustless system which i think is fascinating but it is an opportunity to to think about a totally different paradigm for money and in many ways now digital assets and so i do think about it from a regulatory perspective and i think some people get frustrated with federal regulation that it's slow and doesn't move quicker but you know our country you know wasn't built in a day. And so I don't necessarily blame regulators for being cautious. I think they do have to be more open to innovation, I think, as things uh, change more quickly. But I wouldn't want them to just, you know, uh, kind of a race to the bottom. Global deregulation, I don't think is necessarily the answer either. 
And then the other aspect that I think has uh, shaped me is monetary policy. You know, we talk about, especially with Bitcoin as an alternative currency, what is that relationship with fiat currency? And there's a lot of questions now about inflation and whether the Fed has been too lax with government policy. And I, I'm, I guess, also sympathetic to the challenges of monetary policy. I really like to talk to my students about the pros and cons of having an ungoverned financial system versus a governed financial system. And there's, I don't view it as one's right and one's wrong. They're just different approaches. And so I, I think the future is we're going to see how these two systems kind of work side by side. So interesting that you brought up the Federal Reserve and inflation. So I guess my question then, as I think about it, if you were in charge of the Federal Reserve, what would you be doing? Like, how are you going to manage this? Uh, and I bring this up because you also posted recently on LinkedIn the concept of high inflation with low nominal interest rates. And the United States is like negative 4 to 8% real interest, real returns. If you were if you were the head of the Fed, what would you be doing now? <laughs> an unfair um, question, but yeah, it's well, it's also easy to be an armchair quarterback and kind of throw rocks from the side. But um, you know, I think with their recent meeting uh, here in December, you know, signaling three rate hikes in the next year and and fat, uh, quickening the the end of the quantitative easing, I do think that they are shifting towards a more conservative and, and more hawkish stance towards inflation because as we've gone from transitory inflation to now a recognition that this is persistent inflation, the monetary policy has to back off. And so I think this transition that they've gone through this month is the right one. Now, I, I could say, I'm not sure I'm really on record, uh, but I do think in like in my teaching, Earlier this year, even back in the spring, I was indicating to my students that, that I am concerned about the amount of fiscal stimulus and monetary stimulus during COVID, that yes, we want to prevent a deeper recession, but there are implications for you know the, the remainder of the business cycle and the future, especially with our current debt load. So you know my experience in 2008, 2009, in the financial crisis, with the bank bailouts, with the massive monetary response, I'm still supportive of those decisions. You know, I, I do think Ben Bernanke made a lot of great decisions that were necessary at the time. But I've also become more sympathetic to the view that the, the U.S. economy needs to go through cycles. And if the Federal Reserve, if the U.S. Treasury are always there to provide support on the bottom side, then we lose some of that risk on the downside. You know, people often refer to the Greenspan put in mm -hmm. financial markets. And, and I'm concerned about that. You know, you can get asset price inflation. So not just inflation in, in the dollar, but asset prices as well. And some of that's because of this safety net that has been put in place. So I am concerned about where we go with that. Yeah, And it does seem to hurt the middle class and lower spectrum more because they don't have an opportunity to buy homes at fair prices, you know, you need that bust cycle. No one likes to go through it, but it it does make things stronger. I mean, coming from the trading floor, we had traders blow out. They didn't appreciate, you know, the gamma or their short option positions. And when they blew out, 
they came back stronger in most cases. And it was really good for the economy of the trading floor to go through those 87 crash, 89 mini crash. And I could go through like 10 more from the 80s. So, yeah, I, I agree with you that sometimes you do need to let things fail a little bit. Uh, you know, not get contagious, but fail so that there's opportunity for people who have saved and who are willing to assume risk more prudently. Uh, but let me ask you this then. When you were talking about your students, uh, they certainly seem to bring an energy and a vibe to your classes, right? You guys are working almost collaboratively, which, collaboratively, which is really exciting. But would you say that the students are interested kind of peripheral in Bitcoin and blockchain in this fintech space? Or would you say they are actively seeking jobs and positions and working with companies in this fintech space where they're like, I don't want to work for Goldman. I don't want to work for Morgan. I don't want to work on Wall Street. I want to be in Silicon Valley or I want to be with a fintech company doing blockchain stuff. Like, how is that conversation going and how are students landing jobs or internships at these companies? Yeah, I think it, it runs the full gamut. So for my undergraduate students and some of my graduate students, I think they're exploring crypto first of all as an investment you know with uh, especially with crypto becoming available on Robinhood, mm -hmm. you can buy it on venmo and all these other kind of apps on a phone then it becomes very easy to purchase it now i do try and explain to them you know we have these conversations about not your keys not your coins and they don't always quite understand that but you know they're if they're making money they're happy um so I think given this increase in retail investing that we've seen with the meme stocks and with crypto, my students are much more engaged now, I think, just with what's going on. And some people get concerned about speculation or are kids just trying to get rich quick nowadays, but it is a learning experience. And I, and I think they're growing from that. And then some of my students are getting very serious about this, especially my graduate students. So in that course, we create these project teams. The teams propose a decentralized application, and then they work together on building a proof of concept. And so some of those students, especially the technical ones that are getting directly involved in the coding, are very much thinking about how do they go out and work in this space. Now, I would say it is kind of an open question as to what are the job opportunities in blockchain and crypto. So I think as it becomes more mainstream, as institutions get more involved, that we'll see more of that. But it is still very kind of entrepreneurial in that regard. And so part of that is why I've been working with our Center for Entrepreneurship, because those are the students who I think if they've already got kind of startups on their mind, then the idea of a kind of a startup technology resonates with them. So we're still getting a lot of stu students going into, you know, investment banking, consulting. But as I think interest shifts more towards technology, more towards startups, then I think crypto and blockchain is going to be part of that. Interesting. And would you say that your conversations with uh, computer lab, uh, computer teachers at DePaul has also been very friendly and because I would imagine you might get students who are frustrated. I, I'm thinking, I don't know, I, they come into your class, they learn about blockchain and maybe Solidity and how some of these Ethereum projects are running. Then they go back to their computer programming class or their teacher and saying, hey, I want to learn this. And the teacher might be like, well, we really think you should learn C and C++ and Visual C++ first. Like, Or would you say it's 
the mind is opening, like the, the conversations and dialogue is opening on the computer programming side. For sure, yeah. So the, the, the Paul School of Computing has been super supportive of my course, and they've done a great job of uh, marketing that course to their students so that we've been able to generate this blend of business and technical students. And that's one of the things I appreciate about DePaul is, you know, we've got the business school and then the School of Computing are just, you know, one block apart downtown in the loop. And and I think that's the future of business is this integration with technology. So I mentioned like data analytics, we're doing more of that. I'm now working on a course trying to uh, explore automation and machine learning and helping students understand just kind of digital transformation across the workplace, which I think is happening. It's, you know, from startups to big legacy firms as well. And so blockchain, I think, is one of these emerging technologies. I think it's it's very important and it's the one I'm focused on. But it's among these other ones like artificial intelligence and you know, metaverse even, that I think so much is is shifting in this direction of the digital economy over the last two years that I, I want to prepare my students for that. And I can't necessarily do that just from a business perspective. We need to integrate with the technical uh, perspective as well. And so schools like DePaul, I think we're well uh, situated to, to bring that combination. Sure. Beautiful campus downtown. I mean, I've, I've probably spent more time at the uh, South Loop campus and I have in the Lincoln Park campus and it's it's a great facility and very warm and welcoming place to you know to, to hang out and to meet the students. Um, would you say, Lamont, that um, has has COVID and the pandemic and this move to Zoom away from in-person classing? I mean, has that been also a really tough thing in the last two years for you, or would you say that the students are generally already more interested and already more accustomed to doing things online and virtually, right? Like they're they're downloading their programs or they're writing their software, they're uploading it to a, a server somewhere or presenting that to the teacher for grade. Was it, would you say, it's, was it easier or harder, I think, for your students in the last two years? Yeah, the shift to online education was difficult for everybody, I think. And, and part of that was just the the speed at which schools had to pivot, you know, whether you're talking about Chicago public schools or you're talking about higher education, you know, everybody struggled with that. And in higher ed is not known for being nimble. <laughs> per se. So, uh, you know, I, I don't want to be um, too critical, but I think all schools and DePaul was one of them were very challenged that spring when we had to, to go fully online. But I, as a as an educator, think online education is is critical to the future of education. Just like we're seeing business shifting online, we're seeing workplaces shifting more remote. I think school needs to to move in that same direction. And so, DePaul's now trying to offer basically a blend of online courses, in person courses, so that students who want that face to face experience can get it. But you know, over the past year, I've actually been teaching entirely online. I think I'm getting a lot better at it. I'm, I'm able to do it in ways that are more engaging, I think, sometimes even than the face-to-face. -face. And um, one of the things I would also say is trying to – I'm now understanding I need to help students learn how to work in a digital environment. So as a basic example, you know, how do I help them 
work in teams and collaborate online? How do we start shifting towards more cloud-based collaboration? So even when I'm using Excel, you know, my go-to, uh, you know, way of approaching this is Excel is a desktop application. I'm going to open a file. I'm going to upload that file. And then when I need to grade something, I'm going to download that file. Well, Office 365, you know, you can do all of that in the web. And they're now, instead of submitting files, they're sharing links. Right. Instead of, you know, emailing files back and forth, we can have a shared document that we can edit, edit simultaneously. And so all of this, I think, is opening up huge potential for productivity. But students, even though they're very familiar with, um, you know, they're kind of the online generation, they don't necessarily associate the, that with a way to work and sure. so helping them make that transition and when i was going through your linkedin profile you had posted maybe three weeks ago i think it was a, a class you know your blockchain or cryptocurrency class that you had offered and i think you said you had about 90 students so i just took a quick picture and a head count of the number of women versus men that were in the class and I was kind of impressed. I'll be honest with you. I think maybe between five and eight, ten percent of the students were women, uh, were female, and I found that really interesting because that's a much larger number than, say, the female attendance at uh, Bitcoin meetup groups or even the, the Voice of Blockchain and other events that were going on in Chicago during the the peak of of blockchain and cryptocurrency conversation. So I guess as a father of three children, uh, four children, three girls and one boy to see girls in your class actively interested and not being embarrassed or feeling like they don't fit in to be a part of this, I think is really exciting. Because again, our conversation is women in, women in STEM, women in you know, girls that code, uh, and, and to see, to see a greater attendance, you know, by girls, I think is interesting. Like, what's your take on that? Are you seeing more and more women coming into this space? Are they still dabbling to learn? Or they're like, hey, no, this is it. I want to do this. Like like our no, friend Hannah. Yes, they are definitely getting involved. And, and that presence is growing, which I think is great. And it's not dabbling. You know, some of the, the women in this, just this last cohort, they were the strongest coders in the course. <laughs> and they were just killing it. So it was really, it was great to see. And I think we are trying to close that gender gap. And I, I really hope blockchain can become part of that. You know, there's so much discussion about blockchain as being sort of a force of decentralization. And people would also say a force of democratization, you know, this shift from centralized government to decentralized autonomous organizations. I you know, I'm, I talk to my students about this isn't just a different way of doing finance or a different way of doing money or accounting. It's a potentially a different way of organizing people. And I really hope that blockchain and crypto can live up to that potential to, to involve everybody and not just sort of the haves and have nots, but to bring in those people that historically have not been as involved to, to be part of it. I know from watching crypto Twitter, uh, Josie Bellini, who was an artist by trade, but had an interest in technology. I, I met her at a Andreas Antonopoulos event at uh, 1871, I think it was, or maybe M-Hub uh, in Chicago, the Maker Lab. And now she's one of the most popular NFT sales artists out there. So here's a person that 
might not really originally dabbled into technology side, maybe had a slight appreciation for it, but now she's converting her art into non-fungible tokens and is, from all appearances, seem to be doing really, really well. So again, even this technology can democratize and empower people, maybe more artistic, but there's also a way of monetizing their art, which is very interesting, I think, to a lot of artists. And I'm not saying that this is a uh, a female-centric business. I'm just trying to think of the women I know in in Twitter, um, crypto Twitter, that have transitioned and have embraced blockchain to give themselves more power in pricing of their goods and not be at the hands of you know whoever it is that they're normally used to distributing their artwork from. Yes, I, well, I think NFTs have been great for getting the message out there, for getting people involved. You know, I had my students first talking to me about it from the perspective of like NBA top shots and just, you know, some of my students were buying this stuff and then bringing it and sharing it in class. And, but I think as you, like you said, as it relates to arts and media, you know, that's a big part of schools like DePaul that's not in the business school, but has so much potential for that engagement and connection. So for instance, with it, we have a DePaul blockchain and crypto club, like a student club that has taken different forms over the last three to five years. And at times, it's been primarily computer science students, and then at times, it's been primarily finance students. And, and the most recent students who are leading it are coming out of cinema and media who are interested from, you know, what can this mean for the business model of the arts and how we can sort of shift from, you know, studio revenue models to more kind of creator economy models. And and so there's a lot of potential that's very interdisciplinary. And yeah. I think that's what's so cool about it. I don't think, I think I appreciate that more now in our conversation is that for me, you know, again, growing up a little bit more old school, it was liberal arts, drama, art over there. And over here were the geeks and the programmers and the business guys. Now you have you have this opportunity to merge and meld and this overlap between the arts and the sciences in a really interesting new way, right? Where where maybe both sides can appreciate, you know, the disciplines that each other engage in, and that would not really be possible. Or the conversation started without the blockchain space that we we speak of. Yes, and one other I think interesting element of this from kind of the Gen Z perspective is historically we would have thought like liberal arts you're kind of creative less interested in profit making you're going to do your own thing if you work in the business school or even computer science you're probably going to end up working for the man and just you know selling your soul yes but but blockchain and crypto breaks down that binary distinction yes. where you know, crypto is just disruptive by design. And, you know, especially as we start talking about Web3 and, you know, people owning their own data and setting up systems of doing business that don't run through these centralized profit hubs, then young students, it's not just about a different way of doing business. It's uh, they start thinking about the social implications. They like that blockchain is decentralized because that resonates with how they view the world. They don't want centralized power and governance. And so it's it's it they feel good about building and working in this new kind of environment. I think it's very pro woman uh 
you know, I have, we have a family friend who is the executive director for a entrepreneurial hub in Peru. 85% of their new startup businesses are women. 85%, mostly single moms. 15%, I don't know what the guys are doing, right? They're just asleep at the wheel. But 85% of the new entrepreneurs, new businesses that are being started, whether it's clothing, design, babysitting services, nursing, transportation, whatever it is, it's women in Peru. And they want this. They want to be self-sovereign women. They want to have a greater say in what's going on in the economy. They work very well together and network. They work together more collaboratively than, say, the guys might be more competitive in their conversations. So I see women being positively influenced, and I think you do too, on the technology that blockchain is bringing, really, like you said, democratizing it. Yeah. Well, within our department, so I'm in the business school and in the finance department, we now have two new student clubs. We have women in finance. We have diversity in finance for students of color. And, you know, I think especially not just the, the blockchain, you know, transformation that we've seen over the last few years, but the discussion about race and gender. I think everyone is kind of trying to figure out what does this new economy look like? And I think if we can shift towards a more creator economy, then it creates more of those on-ramps that, you know, startup no longer has to be, you know, I create it in my garage and then I grow to, you know, a million in revenue in the first year. It's just, who am I? How do I express myself and share myself with the world? And how does that bring value that people are willing to, to pay me for, you know? And so, it, with NFTs, with blockchain, with all of these kind of decentralized forms of doing business, then I think we're going to see more of a ground up innovative economy that, that I think will be very, uh, has huge potential for the next few decades. And so Lamont, I, when I posted on LinkedIn that I was doing this interview with you, I had asked, does anybody want me to ask Lamont a question? And there was one gentleman, Adrian, that asked me to ask you this question, and that is, in your experience in decentralized finance and DeFi, the total value locked in smart contracts or in DeFi, do you think it's going to continue growing at the rate that it has in the next five years? So I've done a little bit of research. There's anywhere between $90 billion and $250 billion locked up in Ethereum contracts and other type of DeFi projects. But now we have this news where... Everything, every crypto project could be considered a security with the exception of Bitcoin. And we've seen a huge shellacking in a lot of these DeFi projects and cryptocurrencies in the last, say, two weeks or so. Your experience, do you think DeFi and total value locked up is going to continue in the next five years? Or do you think maybe the party has been, you know, lights out in DeFi because now you have to bring a regulatory and security aspect to all that? Well, I definitely don't think it's party over. You know, I think decentralized finance just conceptually is extremely compelling. You know, as I've tried to learn more about this the last few years, I've started to realize, like, I feel like it would be wrong for me as an educator to not start talking about this in my courses because, you know, traditional finance is centralized finance and DeFi is decentralized finance. And to help students even understand that distinction, I think is almost as important as helping them understand fiat currency versus cryptocurrency. Because, you know, especially as a finance professor, 
you know, the world is shifting towards more peer-to-peer real-time settlement. And so DeFi, especially if we're talking about decentralized exchanges, I think that is the future of how we will swap not just tokens, but securities. And so, you know, it's not by chance that all the big stock exchanges are exploring Bitcoin or sorry, blockchain, because it's arguably a more efficient system for clearing and settlement. And so even though DeFi, you know, has, I think, faltered a little bit in this last year or two, um, part of that's regulation. Part of that is the gas fees, you know, because so much of it was built on the Ethereum network and Ethereum gas fees have been so high. It was it was difficult for me to use it in my class this last quarter, this fall, because I was basically encouraging students to go out and use different DeFi protocols like Aave, Compound, um, and they 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 wanted to experiment, but the gas fees were just prohibited. So it's I think it's going to go through these growth um, growing pains, similar to I think Ethereum just its scaling issues. Mm-hmm. Um, but as we explore different blockchain solutions, like I'll be honest, like I've become much more interested recently, let's say in Solana and Avalanche, some of these different layer one uh, solutions that arguably have some uh, easier scaling issues. So I think as we have more people building in this space and exploring this space, then we're going to see that that enthusiasm and momentum return. Now, another issue that I think will be relevant, like you said, with regulation is how does this relate to traditional finance? Because if we go back to 2008, 2009, it wasn't about DeFi, but it was about shadow banking. And right. so in, in 08, 09, we had the traditional banking system. Then we had the shadow banking system. And what regulators realized is that the shadow banking system can bring down the banking system. And so even though it's outside that regulatory circle, it still poses risk right. to the financial system. So as DeFi grows, it poses more systemic risk. And so regulators have to think about that. So it, it, it's not like... It should exist entirely separate from that system. These systems are going to integrate over time, and we have to figure out how to do that effectively. Right. And something else that the 2008-2009 crisis taught us was the concept of the counterparty risk. Yes. So the shadow banking system had all these over-the-counter products, and the Federal Reserve maybe could not have gotten their arms around it. The regulators couldn't see what was going out there, hence the dark pools and in shadow banking, but I guess on the good side of the DeFi is that there is a way you can view this on a blockchain. So there is a certain sense of transparency. And you think about the dollars held in reserve to protect against counterparty risk. I mean, watching, you know, being a, a market maker in that time period, we weren't sure whether we should trade with anybody that was associated with Merrill Lynch or Bear Stearns and some of the other big firms because we weren't sure if we were going to get our money back, right? Or we the trade was going to clear. So on one hand, I see what could potentially be billions, if not trillions of dollars unshackled to be able to use productively around the globe if we can somehow embrace DeFi and not, again, do too bad of a job of mm, attenuating the, the good things that it could possibly bring. Yeah, and I think another lesson learned from 2008 and 09 was uh, consumer protection, in particular consumer financial protection. And, you know, there's a lot of 
debates about the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau that came out of that and, and whether it's sort of become too active. But I think with DeFi, sometimes people get a little too over-optimistic about you know, smart contracts and transparency because, yes, the code is there and anyone can look at it. It's open source. And so, you know, from a purely technical standpoint, it is fully transparent. But how many people, when they engage in these types of applications, are really understanding that kind of back back-end structure? And so if you think about like subprime mortgage lending in 2008 and 2009, you know, some of that was sort of, um, you know, arguably fraud, but some of that was the, there was mortgage disclosure to the borrower, you know, truth in lending of like, okay, these are the terms. And yes, there's this, uh, you know, repayment penalty, but you don't need to worry about that. And so sometimes people know the facts, but they still go into a financial contract, just kind of hoping for the best. And so DeFi, even though it is more transparent, I still think there's room for fraud, for scams, and for people just not being fully literate. So part of what DeFi needs is to become more user-friendly and to also become more kind of ubiquitous so that people start to understand what it is. Because you don't necessarily want people using tools, even if they're the right tools, you don't want them using those tools if they don't even understand what the tool is. So we we still need some broad-based education. Good idea. All right, so tell me this, Laban, as we kind of draw things to a close. what? How do you see yourself, say, in the next few years, or how do you see DePaul, uh, a great institution, how do you see that position for the future? What do you, just give me a little bit, a few, a few years of what your the future look looks like for you, for the school, or for you know, this kind of curriculum that you're looking to build? Yeah, so one of my goals as a finance professor is really to build out a more full curriculum in the area of fintech. So I view cryptocurrency and blockchain as being kind of core pieces of a broader fintech ecosystem. So I also want to be, you know, offering education in the areas of like online lending, robo-advising. I think all of this is what we're seeing not just with blockchain, but also, like I said, with analytics, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. And then within crypto and blockchain, starting to offer kind of different tracks, helping students thinking about think about it from an investment perspective. What does it mean to have this alternative investment? What does it mean to have a custodial versus non-custodial account? How does this relate to a traditional portfolio of stocks and bonds? You know, those are pure portfolio theory questions in the context of crypto. And then from the technical side, I'm personally right now very excited about working with computer science students to propose new projects, to put those projects out there. You know, we're using GitHub so that we have these kind of shared repositories that can be made publicly accessible. I'm starting to put more of my content on my personal website. So lamontblack.com has a ton of my material out there because I want to provide this arguably as a service to people who are trying to learn about this, not just my students, but the broader community, because the if, if blockchain, crypto, DeFi, all of this, Metaverse, Web3, if we're going to see this really take off in the U.S., then we need that next generation of not just workers, but leaders. Mm-hmm. And and that's where I'm excited to be in the, the field of education right now, because 
I'm not necessarily building these things myself, but I'm helping empower this next generation to do that. So it's very exciting. It's very exciting, really, to change lives, you know, one at a time. I mean, that's that's terrific. How how can people get a hold of you, Lamont, if they'd like to contact you more about coursework or speaking engagements? Yeah, so I'm on LinkedIn, Lamont Black. I'm on Twitter, Lamont K. Black, and also my personal website, LamontBlack.com. That has all my contact information. And, and I do a fair amount of speaking engagements. I've done some uh, different media broadcasting. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to get out there and meet more folks. So appreciate the opportunity. Oh, gosh, thank you so much. It's great catching up with you again after several years. And I hope to see you in Chicago, right, in, uh, amongst the uh, the meetup groups and, and the events, because it's it would be great to open things up again and see people, you know, face to face and shake hands, you know, their personal touch again. Yes, I look forward to it. Thank you, Bill. All right, thanks, Lamont. Talk to you later. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. The information is believed to be factual and up-to-date, but we do not guarantee its accuracy and should not be regarded as a complete analysis of the subjects discussed. And answers to questions do not involve the rendering of personalized investment advice and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation of any offer to buy or sell the securities, forms of payment, cryptocurrencies, options, or strategies mentioned. It is not intended to be a substitute for specific individuals individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine what is suitable for you, consult a professional advisor before implementing any information presented to discuss profit, loss, and risk. Investment advisory services are offered through Seneca Capital Management, LLC, a state-registered investment advisor. The firm and investment advisor representatives of Seneca Capital Management only conduct business where they are properly registered. Registration with the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any state securities authority does not imply a certain level of skill or training.